0: We'll turn now to Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. If you do not have a a Bible with you, or if you'd like to follow along as I read with the uh, ESV, the version I'll be reading from, we have a copy of that in front of you, found on page 917. We're picking up after the uh, miraculous conversion experience of Saul on the road to Damascus. He has been blinded by the brilliance of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ and has been brought to Damascus where he has been three days without sight or uh, food or water. Beginning now in verse 10, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates by day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night. And let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. They were seeking to kill him. When the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. During World War II, a Spaniard by the name of Juan Pulos Garcia had the distinction of receiving military decorations from both sides of the war. He was awarded the Iron Cross from the Third Reich and also became a member of the Order of the British Empire. Now, how could that be? Well, the answer is that he was a double agent. Um, after developing a loathing for political extremism of, of all kinds during the Spanish Civil War, Garcia approached uh, the British government uh, the, Through the embassy there in Madrid And saying that he wanted to do, to, to do something For the good of all humanity And he wanted to become a spy for them Against the uh, Axis powers But they rejected his offers three times He availed himself three times They turned him down They had no reason to believe him That he really uh, was willing to spy For the sake of the British crown He had to prove himself and so it wasn't until he actually was accepted as a German spy and fed them, the Germans, false information that Britain saw how valuable he was. Well, that suspicion of, of the British government uh, towards Garcia is something that we see there of the Jerusalem Christians in verse 26. He, Saul came to Jerusalem, t- attempted to join the disciples, But they were afraid and they didn't believe that he was really who he said he was, that he was a disciple. Should they accept this man, Saul? Though they have many reasons, on the one hand, not to, the reality is that he proved himself in a number of ways, beyond the shadow of a doubt, to be a genuine follower of the way. Uh, This this section that we've read of chapter 9 shows us a complete change in this person, uh, Saul of Tarsus the persecutor of God's people, has become a chosen instrument in God's program of salvation. It's clear that he has been called by God, and so who are they not to affirm that calling, which is, of course, what they eventually do. And in this passage, Luke highlights for us the total transformation of Saul, uh, the kind of transformation that would would make people who are at one point threatened to the point of death from this man now welcome him in and call him a brother. Luke describes that transformation that took place for us in at least, I think, three ways. He highlights three ways in which Paul has, or Saul has changed. He's not yet going by this name, Paul. Uh, the first thing is that Luke wants to indicate his penitential nature. We see first Saul the penitent. Saul the penitent. Prior to this section of Acts, Luke had described Saul as breathing threats of murder against the church. It was the air he breathed. It was his element. This is what he did. He lived to persecute the church. He would describe himself later as a self-righteous and self-assured and arrogant sinner. But here we see a contrite heart, which, as we've sung, is something that the Lord does not despise. The Lord is going to use this disciple in Damascus named Ananias to commission Saul into his apostolic work. The Lord comes to Ananias. Uh, Jesus comes to him uh, as, he comes to, as he came to Saul, although in a different manner, but he, he comes to him in this personal way and tells him where to meet Saul and how to ordain him to this new work. And Ananias it's told this. What's the first thing that Jesus says about Saul? What's the first thing that Ananias is told about Saul? It says, behold, he is what? He is praying. Verse 10. Or verse uh, 11. Rise, go to the street called Straight, the house of Judas, look for this man named Saul. Behold, he is praying. We were told in verse 9 that he had already been fasting for three days. Now, this is not to suggest that before this point, Saul had never fasted or prayed as a pharisee he probably did it at least twice a week and told everybody about it but i i think that this is i I don't think I'm, i'm sure this is actually the first time that saul really prayed this is the first time he communed with god the father and the reason we know this is the first time is because well, of basic theology, but it's, it's not a theology we ever graduate from. And that theology is this. There is no way to know God the Father unless you first know God the Son. Jesus said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is the first time that Saul is, is praying through the mediation of Jesus Christ. The first time he is communing truly with the Godhead. Is it a coincidence that the, the first time that, that Saul gets his theology right, that his relationship with, with, with God is, is orthodox and is true, is it a coincidence this happens as he is staying at the street called Straight? His life is finally on the straight and narrow path. Saul was likely spending concerted time in prayer of, of confession, of of repentance seeking god's mercy for his years of self-righteousness and most recently his zealous persecution of the church that was what's on ananias's mind he says lord I've, i've heard about this man it's almost as though he's saying lord maybe you haven't heard about this man but i have i've heard about this maybe you don't know this is what he's been doing he was persecuting the church in jerusalem and then he received this permit where he can now come and arrest and persecute Christians in Damascus, his hesitancy is understandable, but Jesus impresses upon Ananias that the man has changed, that he has a new purpose now. Saul will no longer be an instrument of violence against the church, but he will be an instrument used by God for the sake of the church. Look at what he's told in verse 15. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, carry my name before gentiles and kings and even the children of israel this statement is indicative of the new life of forsaking sin and endeavoring to live for christ that that is now sauls this idea of carrying the name this means more than god saying he will preach my name uh, which some translations i think miss the niv says that he will proclaim my name that is certainly in view here but it's not all that's in view Uh, the the King James gets it right it says he will bear my name ESV he will carry my name the idea is more than he will talk about Jesus but Jesus will be upon him in his whole life we we use the phrase you know you bear resemblance to somebody that's the idea here now Saul will bear a resemblance of Christ and all that he is and all that he's done Christ will be upon him. He won't just talk the talk. He will walk the walk. He will pick up the very cross of Christ and bear it, carrying it upon his shoulders. He will be a character witness, we could say. A character witness. It's a changed life. And this is seen even in the fact that he will be called to, to mimic Christ in his suffering. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name, Jesus says. You know, Ananias was concerned about Saul because he imprisoned people, uh, the people of God. But now we're told here that he would be imprisoned for God, for God's purpose. And, of course, much worse than that. Bearing the name means bearing the reproach of Christ. And only somebody who's entirely emptied of themselves, truly penitent, would be willing to do that. So, now convinced by the Lord... That this Saul of Tarsus was no longer a persecutor, but really a penitent believer. Ananias submits to the instructions. He goes to Saul. He greets him with this warm title, brother. Lays his hands upon him. He receives his sight. He's baptized. He ends his fast. And then he gets to work. Did you see that? In verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus. In the synagogues, the urgency of a new believer—right, his life has been changed. He wants your life to be changed too. He wants everybody that he knows to have the same experience that he has had. We should endeavor for that zeal to never wane as we grow up and go on in the Christian life. But we consider now, secondly, as we as we're thinking about this new life of Saul, we consider Saul the preacher. We're seeing him in his new vocation. The fact that he preached at all is staggering, let alone the fact that he did so powerfully and effectively. Uh, we're told that the people in verse 21 were amazed. Uh, literally, it, it means to be astonished beyond the point of belief. Uh, it's, it's a word that's used in Mark's gospel when... Uh, When Jesus raises uh, that little girl uh, from the dead, it says they were immediately, they were overcome with amazement. That's how unbelievable Saul's conversion is. With the intensity with which he he hated the cause of Christ, that to now see him preaching the cause of Christ to them. Well, you might as well just brought a dead man back to life. And of course, that is what happened. That's how astonished they are. Note four things about Saul's preaching in this chapter that's true and indicative of, of, of powerful preaching in in any age. The first thing, of course, is that he preached Christ. Verse 20 says he immediately proclaimed Jesus. It's not that he went about and he talked about Jesus or he made passing reference to Jesus as he urged people on to, to you know, ethical living Whatever it was that Saul preached, it was so Christ-centered that Luke can simply say he proclaimed Jesus. This is the goal of true preaching. It's to ensure that the audience leaves not having heard about Jesus, not getting a faint impression of Jesus, but that the audience can leave and saying, we heard Jesus. We heard him. Not jokes, not self-help tips, but Jesus. That must always be the primary aim of, of, of this church and this pulpit, whoever's in it, is to preach Christ. We have a little plaque here, if you're ever up here. It says, sir, we would see Jesus. Him we proclaim, blazoned on our, our website and in our uh, brochures and material. We want people to know that that's what we're about. Or about Jesus. I have a, a, a little framed uh, um, picture or, or um, calligraphy thing in my office that reminds me of this. It's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. The Prince of Preachers says this, A sermon without Christ at its beginning, middle, and end is a mistake in conception and a crime in execution. If a man can preach one sermon without mentioning Christ's name in it, it ought to be his last. Saul proclaimed Jesus. Secondly, he preached Christ as as the Son of God. At the close of verse 20, we're told in more detail what exactly Saul was saying uh, about Jesus, and it was that he is the Son of God. He was telling the Jews gathered in the synagogue that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, was no lunatic, he wasn't a liar, he was really who he claimed to be. Uh, this would come to be a focal point in, in Paul's ministry, proving that Jesus is the Son of God at the opening of Romans. that Like the first few verses, he talks about that he's a, an apostle called to preach the gospel, which is that concerning the Son of God. The gospel is that which concerns God's Son, a real human, truly descended from the line of David, but proven to be divine, declared to be the Son of God, according to Romans 1-4, through the resurrection So true preaching tells us who Jesus is. Third, notice that he was evangelistic in his preaching. Verse 22 says that he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Saul did not merely uh, go to groups that already agreed with his message, affirm their faith, and, and just provide practical application for their lives although that would be a good thing that's an important thing that's a necessary thing but that's not the only thing that's needed Uh, preaching is not just about um, uh, building up believers it's also about drawing in the lost it's it's concerned with convincing and converting unbelievers it's apologetic it gives reasons and proves it said he proved that jesus was the christ it compels people in people who believe in Christ to keep on believing, but it shows people who don't believe in Christ what they're missing out on. Who they're missing out on. And it compels them to come in like like sheep that need to come into the pen and receive the ministry of the good and great shepherd. Until we... Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the yes and amen to every single one of God's promises. We are still lost in our sin. We need to believe that about him. True preaching is evangelistic. And then the fourth and final thing we note about his preaching in this chapter is that he preaches in the power of God. Uh, and, and this is really important because everything we've said up until this point wouldn't mean a thing if he didn't do it in dependence upon God's power look at verse 27 and then verse 28 we're told this about Saul twice over in verse 27 Barnabas testifies that how at Damascus Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus and then once the the believers accept him it says he goes and he preaches boldly in the name of the Lord in the name so earlier we learned that he preached the name but now we're told that he preaches also in the name Uh, The idea here is that of authority and power. He's not preaching in his own name. And it's not about him. It's about God. It's about the one who commissioned him. The one who sent him. He preaches in the power and authority of the one who commissioned him. True preaching is always dependent upon God. Without the spirit at work, it doesn't matter. The gifting of the minister... Of the preacher, it will be for nothing. Saul was in ministry. He was a Pharisee up until this point, and it was not a ministry that was done in dependence upon God's power. He's changed. There's a new man, Saul the penitent, Saul the preacher. But then, finally, we notice Saul the persecuted. The prediction was that he would have to suffer for the cause of Christ, and it happens almost immediately upon his conversion and his entrance into ministry, first in Damascus, the, the Jews try to kill him, but uh, the plot is revealed to him, and, and he makes his escape down a wall. But then it happens when he gets to Jerusalem as well. And in a similar way, God providentially reveals uh, the, the plan to him. He, we're told later on in Acts that, that he had a vision that, that where this was described to him. And, um, and he makes his escape to Tarsus. Actually, the group that tries to kill him in Jerusalem, we're told, is... The Hellenists, in verse uh, 29, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. So they were seeking to kill him. The last time we heard about the Hellenists was in chapter 6 when they killed Stephen. At whose bidding? Saul's. The people that once killed for Saul now want to kill Saul. How things have changed. John Uh, Stott makes this observation. The story of Saul's conversion in Acts 9 begins with him leaving Jerusalem with an official mandate from the high priest to arrest fugitive Christians. And then it ends with him leaving Jerusalem as a fugitive Christian himself. Saul the persecutor has become Saul the persecuted. And what has been a pretty exciting and dramatic Exhilarating story up to this point is painted in the shade of grim realism with these accounts of persecution. And it's a good wake-up call for the church to remember that this is actually the norm, not the exception, for being a follower of the way, for being a Christian. Persecution, suffering, is the norm, not the exception. Now We have been blessed in God's providence in this country for many decades in large measure to have experienced the exception but suffering we must not forget is the norm Saul was told that he would suffer much for the name he goes on to be shipwrecked and be beaten imprisoned and and eventually die for the sake of Christ Peter is told something similar in John 21 he's told what kind of death he would have to endure because he follows uh, uh, the Christ but uh, these are not just things that are told to uh, these kind of mega apostles, Paul and Peter, this is really the the call of every Christian. Peter himself tells us that. In 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse 12, he says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. Suffering is not strange. Suffering is not weird. Suffering is not abnormal. Suffering is... For the Christian is normal. That doesn't make it easy. And yet, as Bonhoeffer has said, suffering is the badge of true discipleship. Did you hear that? Suffering is the badge of true discipleship. What do you think of that? Uh, Bonhoeffer is saying, if you really want to prove that you're uh, a follower of Christ, you will endure Suffering. Are you still? Are you still in? Are you all in still? If the Christian life reflects the Apostle Paul more in his suffering than in his miraculous encounter with Christ or his uh, effective and popular preaching tours, if this is really what it looks like to be a Christian, are you still on board? How can we face the reality of suffering for the sake of the name? with the determination of Saul. Many of us here have been Christians a lot longer than Saul was at this point, and yes, and yet if placed in the same situation as his, we question if we would cave or not. And the answer to the stability that we need in suffering comes from the Savior. It comes from how we understand Christ and what it means to be a Christian. Remember that Saul was operating in the power of the name. We need to do the same thing. Peter goes on in that same chapter, actually in the very next verse, to remind us that we, rather than focus on our suffering, need to focus on our Savior. He says, but rather rejoice as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Christ is meant to reframe your suffering in at least two ways. One, through your union with him. That's what Peter's really getting at. If you're united to him, that means, yeah, you'll share in his sufferings, but that is proof that you're going to share in his glory. You need to remember that, dear Christian, that your union to Christ reframes your suffering. Suffering here and now for the sake of Christ is the guarantee that you'll be glorified with him in the future but there's another way in which uh, Christ should reframe our suffering and that is by by way of imitation, by way of example by way of motivation, by way of love what I mean by that is this when we face suffering we ought to think upon his suffering what he endured and why he endured it and the why is you and me he did it for us he endured hardships. Well, this is what Hebrews chapter 12 tells us. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider his suffering so that it reframes your suffering. As we think about what Christ... Has endured, it should move us to love him all the more and be ready to do anything for him. And so, as you think about the persecution that you've faced, that you're facing, or that you may very well be called to face sometime soon, what attitude do you have? Are you angry about it? Is your first instinct complaint? Are you considering all the ways your life is inconvenienced? when instead you haven't yet considered him who endured such hostility against himself? Does what you're going going through compare to what he has gone through? The author of Hebrews says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Consider him. Friends, we need to see what he has done for us. We must know and believe and embrace what he has gone through for us. Once I do that, once I see what he's done for me, once I believe that he's done it for me, it puts what I'm called to do for him into perspective. And the perspective, of, uh, uh, the perspective that we need is this, in the words of Samuel Rutherford, the weightiest end of the cross of Christ that is laid upon you lieth upon your strong Savior. The weightiest end of the cross that lies upon you actually lies upon your Savior. So we must forever keep in mind what Christ endured for our sake. If we would wish to endure for his sake. And we remember that it's not just that he endured trials for us. But he endured them because of us. Because of our sin. We necessitated his death. Could we ever complain against the lovely, the beautiful, the kind and perfect savior. That would go through torture and death. Because of us. And not recognize that we owe him the debt of our lives. And I think that was Saul's secret. I can't be dogmatic about this, but, but I imagine that as he was threatened by the townspeople in Damascus, or by the Jews in Jerusalem, and as he would go on to endure various trials of all sorts, I believe what kept him from despairing during his persecution was an echo of that voice on the Damascus road. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, You and I need to hear that voice as well, because when you do, you realize it doesn't come in tones of anger. That's not how Jesus said that to Saul. He was not angry with him. He was not. He was not disgusted. It wasn't an air of "How dare you? Who do you think you are?" The Christian knows that that voice actually comes from heaven, trembling in the, in the tones of of, of heartache. This, this sense of such love that he has for us and, 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 and mourning the fact that we don't get it, that we don't know how much he loves us. Why are you doing this? Why are you profaning my name? Why do you hate me? Maybe today you're plugging your ears to that voice from heaven, unwilling to be broken in true repentance and contrition before the Lord of glory. We don't want to hear it because it means coming to an end of ourselves. It means giving up on our kingdom building. It means abdicating a throne that we never really had a right to in the first place. It means that our whole lives would be changed. That's what we saw from Saul. His whole life was changed. And that's scary, isn't it? We're afraid if we we actually acknowledge that voice that's pleading with us that it will crush us. It will bring us to an end of ourselves, but it doesn't crush us. And we see that in this text. What's the result of believing the voice from heaven for the sake of Saul? What what happens? Verse 22 of our text. It says he increased. Because he heard and because he believed that voice, he increased. And then what's the effect for the church when they believe that same voice now mediated through the preaching of Saul? What happens? Verse 31, it multiplied. To come to the end of ourselves is actually the beginning. For us as individuals and as a church to be nothing allows the world to see Christ for who he really is. The all in all. Father, we thank you for your word and we do ask that you would transform us even as you have transformed Saul by your word we ask that you would meet our needs with it, that you would increase us greatly, and that we would be filled with hope and with comfort in the Holy Spirit, and that we would, in every way, multiply. Amen.